What's up, coaches? How's it going? This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Team Attack Academy. Team Attack Academy is an online football development site for football players and coaches of all levels. It's the most powerful teaching tool introduced into the game today to raise the level of playing and coaching football. After using Team Attack Academy, your athletes and coaches will outplay, outwork, and outsmart their opponents, guaranteed. Uh, I've used Team Attack Academy with my offensive line at Broken Arrow here the past two years. Um, It's been an unbelievable tool. We've been able to install our entire offense with the offensive line, run game, pass game um, quickly, and gotten into where in practice we're not working as much as who we're blocking but how we're blocking them. It's been a great tool for us. Uh, and the kids love it because they don't have to spend as much time physically up at football. They can do it on some of their off time. So it's been great for us. Visit Team Attack Academy at teamattackacademy.com. We are also sponsored by Sideline Power. Um, Sideline Power is the industry leader in coaching communication. Offering cutting-edge technology and innovation, Sideline Power helps coaches around the country elevate their programs to the next level with new and used headsets, end zone cameras, drones, portable sound systems, timers, and much, much more. Sideline Power works one-on-one with some of the most influential coaches and nationally ranked programs in high school football. They continue to help coaches push the envelope of player and program development. From NFL-level coaching communications to cutting video technology, Sideline Power encompasses a full array of products needed to unleash the full potential of any program. Throughout the expansion of their product offering, Sideline Power has remained committed to offering quality coaching communication at price points for any and every program. They're family-owned and operated with a customer-first mentality. Sideline Power is truly the number one choice for coaching communication. You can visit them at sidelinepower.com. You can email them at info at sidelinepower.com or give them a call at 800-496-4290. Again, guys, don't forget, uh, go check out my my course on CoachTube, um, uh, uh, installing and running weak power. And you can also uh, check out a bunch of other courses on CoachTube as well. Right now, um, I'm looking at Gus Malzon's course uh, over the no huddle offense. Uh, kind of in the middle of it still, still haven't finished it out yet. Um, obviously, it's over the summer, so hanging out with the family a little bit as well in the off time. But uh, it's been great. Get to go through it, get to look at at how he has designed his offense and how he can use up-tempo in that offense. So really cool, get to broaden my horizons on that. Uh, Obviously, me and Coach Walls, we really love the free stuff on YouTube, which is is why we put it out there for you guys. And and there's a lot of guys out there that do the exact same thing. But the really cool part about CoachTube, uh, for me and Coach Walls, is uh, that there's it's an entire course over whatever you want to learn about. So if I want to learn about Gus Malzahn's offense, I don't have to go to a bunch of different videos and find them and, and find them from different games and then sort through all those plays. It's all set up uh, by Coach Malzahn or whoever, whatever course it is, is set up for you to learn that. And it's all in one area uh, with these courses on CoachTube. So I've really enjoyed that and, and I'm enjoying looking through the many, many courses uh, over offense, you know, for me to look through what else I'm going to learn through this summer. On today's episode of RTP, we talk with Matt Drinkall. Coach Drinkall is the head coach at Kansas Wesleyan University in Salina, Kansas. Listen as we talk with Coach about his football stories growing up in Iowa, lessons for all coaches and using social media to your advantage to grow your program and brand, and an in-depth conversation about his and our favorite play, Power. 
You can follow Coach Drink Hall on Twitter at DrinkAllKWU. Hope you guys enjoy. Well, Coach, yeah, why don't you go ahead and kind of give us a, a little bit of a backstory for our listeners and kind of kind of talk about, you know, how, how you came up through the ranks and, and even, you know, high school days and then started coaching and, and now, you know, getting to where you are now. Sure. My story's a pretty, pretty clear, uh, clear path. I uh, played at Bettendorf High School in the state of Iowa, which is a, a very storied football program there with a bunch of state titles. And, um, Finished my playing career there for a couple of legendary coaches and then went and played for Coach Ferentz at the University of Iowa when he very first got there. And then I got injured, uh, suffered a career-ending injury in college. So I, I ended up spending about uh, a full year on crutches having a couple different surgeries. So Coach Ferentz always talked about one thing you want to try to do is help the team no matter what. So I started spending a bunch of time in the film room with the coaches and and. It ended up being the biggest, best thing. My career ending ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me because that really professionally got me on the right track. Because I didn't, you know, I was like everybody else when you're 19 or 20, you have no idea what you're going to do. And um, so the advice that Coach Ferentz gave me was really two things. He said, uh, go somewhere. If you want to get into coaching, go somewhere that will let you coach as opposed to, uh, you know, go be a GA at a huge school and, and you know, fill up coffee cups and pick people up from the airport and stuff like that, where you're going to actually get a coach. And, uh, you know, he said, the other thing is too, don't worry about what level you're at or chasing so many, you know, wins or records or whatever. He's like, enjoy where you're at. So I took, uh, my first coaching job was back at Bettendorf high school, which I was there for two years and then lucked out and got hired on, uh, after that at Western Illinois, uh, with Don Patterson was the head coach, Mark Hendrickson and, was able to uh, coach tight ends and tackles there and, and be involved in that side, that offense, which was really cool because Coach Patterson was a 20-year assistant for Hayden Fry at, uh, at Iowa. So it was that same offense, you know, the same offense Bill Snyder runs at Kansas State, a real, you know, pro-style approach. And then I ended up, uh, you know, I really wanted to get a chance to coordinate. So I went from a Division One school down to an NAI school at St. Ambrose University where I was able to become an O-line coach uh, by trade. And, uh, this was in Oh eight or nine. And then, um, spent a couple of years, you know, kind of worked my way up through there once as I got ready every year, and, um, was able to get on as the OC there. And then had a couple of years of successful seasons there and then got hired down here at Kansas Wesleyan, uh, to kind of rebuild and reboot the program here. And, you know, had the first tough first year, which we knew we'd have and had a pretty good run here since. So um, here I am. Coach, I was just going to say, you got a, a pretty similar background to me, obviously. Uh, I played receiver in, in high school and college, too, and I know you you'd kind of started out as a receiver. That's right? Yep. So what was it kind of like for you being, you know, a wide receiver, a skinny guy like me, and then having to go <laughs> and, and kind of learn the, uh, the offensive line in that trade? I know for me, you know, it, it filled in a lot of the gaps, and it did make me, you know, a better coordinator and a better understanding of that stuff. But what was it like for you kind of having to, to shift gears and, and go in and, and learn that stuff and understand it? Was it something easier because you kind of knew Coach Ferentz, or was it a difficult transition for you? Well, a couple pieces was that I didn't know when I got to college. Um, 
I knew absolutely nothing about football. I mean, I, when I say nothing, I mean nothing. Um, Me too. <laughs> didn't know coverages, didn't know fronts. I mean, it was embarrassing at that point. You know, I line up a receiver and run a route, and I go back and tell the quarterback I'm open and replay the corners. Can't even hang him past five yards, and you just realize he's playing cover two, and you think you're open <laughs> every play. And never heard of something like that before because it recess because guys have guys and all that stuff. So, one thing that's really unique about me, I guess, is that I have coached in a season every position except defensive line. So, I've bounced my first couple jobs, I bounced back and forth from offense to defense. Well, one thing that became abundantly clear to me when I was learning football for the first time. And I was lucked out huge because the Iowa staff at that time had some of the most incredible coaches in college football. You know, Coach Ferentz is a legendary O-line coach at Iowa, and Joe Philbin uh, was the O-line coach there at the time, and Norm Parker and Phil Parker were there. Ron Aiken was the line coach. Well, it became very evident to me that, you know, once I got there within about a, a day, it was, holy cow, these guys are, they know everything there is to know about football. Well, I, I lucked out huge that we had some really good O-line people, and it became evident very quickly that if you want to win, you have to be good up front and know what's going on. So I had always had a fascination with learning that. And it was really neat because I didn't go in with any, exactly like you said, any preconceived notions or bad habits or bad ideas, or I was open to learning and kind of doing everything. And uh, I think that, you know, if there's any advice I could give a young coach, it's coach, coach as many positions as you possibly can and switch sides of the ball because it makes you so much more, of a complete coach and so much more macro minded when you get to build your own systems and, and game plan and, and the way you teach. And, uh, I just think that's a huge, huge advantage for any young coach with having some flexibility. Well, you know, and the, the tough part about that, it seems like is, is going from something where you feel comfortable with it and then switching that gear to, like you said, to something now that you know nothing about, you start finally feeling a little bit good about yourself. And then, okay, now you're going to coach linebackers and you're like, okay, go learn everything brand new now, it seems like. I know, you, you know, you've got a, a good understanding, but now you've got to be able to coach it to your players. So it, it probably takes a special kind of person, and I know it, it would be tough for me to do something like that. probably takes a, you know, a special mindset to be able to say, okay, I'm going to start from square one again. Yeah, always. But that, that's the other piece, too, is I think every good coach understands that you can, like, Somebody else knows it better than you always, no matter what. And there's different ways to be successful. And you can learn something from everybody. You can learn uh, from, you know, any different level, any different style, any different system. There's always different ways to do things that may or may not fit uh, into your teaching and, and your pedagogy and, and really can guide the way that you do your own set of, of terminology or teaching. But, yeah, I, I just think that's – you know, if you can go in with a, I, shoot, I'm 35 years old, and I, uh, I was, I went out last week and was with the West Point staff for an entire week, and the only offensive system I have never coached in whatsoever was a veer option team, which they do, they, they do some of that. That's not all they do, but that's some of their package. Well, I didn't want to go out there and look like an idiot, so I have a, a good buddy who's the offensive coordinator at Luther College, Decorah, Iowa. Mm-hmm. So I jumped in the car and drove eight and a half hours up there to go talk to him. Uh, and have him teach me everything. And I just said, explain it to me like I'm a fourth grader and I don't know anything because I'm not that far off when it comes to this system. So so sat down, took about 20 pages of notes and asked a million questions. And I think if you can go into any scenario like that when guys like, you know, Bill Belichick is sitting there trying calling Chip Kelly to go learn some more pieces of the college game and incorporating tempo. I just think that shows you 
um, you need to be like that all the time. Well, one of the one of the cool things I think with with some of the younger coaches, like like I know it seems like I've helped some guys out because I'm a younger coach, is that like you said, you have no preconceived notions, so that older coach has to actually explain it to you, like you're you know one of the kids, but you're um, you're brave enough as a coach to actually ask questions where some of your kids aren't as well, you know, as open as asking questions when they don't understand. So it seems like you know they've got to really explain themselves as an older coach and rethink. Um, back to when the kid knew nothing because that was something I ran into a lot as a college player was some of my college coaches have been doing it for 25 years. They forgot kind of what a college kid's starting point was. That, that's some of the best coaching advice I ever have is you go into every meeting and assume they know nothing. Not a little, nothing. And when you do it that way, I mean, you, you, you know, I'm in a situation where I'm, I'm 35. I'm the oldest coach on my staff. So I have uh, three GAs and my defense coordinator just turned 27. So even, you know, it's, it's a talented group of guys, but inexperienced. So they might even hear you say something in a meeting that you're teaching to a kid that they had not heard ever before in their whole lives. So I just, I, that's a very valuable uh, skill set if you can teach that way. Coach, I was going to ask you, you know, I, I, we just saw, you know, you were ranked one of the, the top 35 coaches in America under 35. Um, as a head coach, you know, being a young head coach, you know, what, what are some of those things you're looking for? I know you've kind of mentioned already, you know, guys that are maybe hungry to, to learn other positions. You know, what are, what are some of the attributes you've kind of done to, to hire your staff, you know, to maybe weed out guys that you felt, you know, weren't going to fit your style? I mean, what, what's, what's kind of your style when you go around to, to hiring coaches? Uh, the number one thing you look for is, you like, uh, I'm not even necessarily concerned with uh, – resumes i guess but you know as far as uh what your job skills are i want somebody who's smart i'm looking for somebody who's smart who's flexible and and a guy who is going to do the right thing when you're not around and i mean you know the way he recruits the way he treats his own kids the way he spends your recruiting money or your your operating budget money um so so you know i think the big misconception that people talk about in coaching is you get a job because of who you know I don't think that's true at all. I think you get an interview or a phone call because of who you know. But then at that point in time, it's up to you and the hiring party to be able to make a connection and, and know what you're getting yourself into. So, uh, you know, I, I just hired a guy uh, on the offensive side. We're going through spring, and the only full-time coaches on offense in the office is myself and one GA, and he just got done playing four years as a linebacker. And now he coaches our running backs and, and, and fullbacks and tight ends. And, uh, you know, with no experience, but he's a really bright guy who's a hard worker who can, who, you know, we wear a lot of hats. That's the one thing I will tell you that I think is extremely, extremely valuable is if, uh, you know, if, if you're not a guy who went and played in the NFL for a long time and you want to get into coaching, college coaching, I would tell you to do it at a small school because you get to do exactly the same advice I got from Kirk Ferentz a million years ago is holds true now today you know there's there's you see some of those guys who get in there and they ga at an lsu and then they go ga at michigan state and then they ga at toledo well now they're 28 years old and they've still never recruited they've never coached a position they've never determined who goes on you know goes into a game and who doesn't they haven't coached ever and to me is i you know i think one of the things that helped me helped me a lot to prepare me for a head coaching job was until I became a head coach, I had been, I'd coached offense, I'd coached defense, 
I coached in different systems. I've been the equipment guy. I've been the laundry guy. I've been a strength coach, uh, recruiting coordinator. And I, and I had it. So by the time I became a head coach, I really had a very good under, you know, video coordinator, although I had a very good understanding. I, you know, I think I don't have all the answers. I was any stretch of the imagination, but I had an idea going in how, how things should look and how they should be run and what you're looking for out of those people. So to me is if you, yeah, you get somewhere where you're actually doing coaching work. You know, I remember at St. Ambrose, you know, going out and painting the practice field. That's something that I would do with like our work study players. Well, now I'm a head coach. I don't have to do that anymore. But the guy that I, the player that I was paying work study with is my defensive coordinator. And <laughs> because I knew how hard of a worker he was and could count on him. And so to me, those are some of the things that are, are really critical. I think when you look at building your resume, building your, uh, coaching repertoire, I guess. And I bet it looks really good to your kids as well, because I remember, you know, having coaches that couldn't even turn on their computer and I was just thinking, how can this guy know much about football? He doesn't know how to turn on his computer. Oh. He, had to, he had to call in a GA to turn on the computer. And I'm like, this, there's no way. How does how this work? How does he not know how to turn on a computer and a projector? You know, you're exactly right. The other piece, too, that I, you know, I, just, I, hate, I hate listening to is when you hear older coaches complain about how soft kids are, you know, use the term millennials or – Oh, they get distracted. Kids now are three million times smarter than they ever have been in the history of the world. And every generation calls the next generation weaker and more distracted. You know, like the guys who got out of World War II probably said all that about hippies in the sixties and seventies. And now those you know, now those guys are the old tough guys and it's just that's part of the natural process. So today I think it's it's is understanding how fast these kids can process information and how well they multitask and they can do, they're capable of handling more because the, the learning methods are so vast. You know, they can, they can draw it up. They can walk on it, you know, walk through it. They can communicate with each other about it. They can go online and watch film. They can go on YouTube and see other people doing it. The, the, the opportunity for learning is so much more vast than it was before. And I, I just, yeah, you're exactly right when it comes to guys who I've worked with guys like that before in Division One. They couldn't turn on a computer or couldn't print something or right. just like, oh, smokes. Yeah, it it bugs me too. I mean, it's like you said, Coach, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because you listen to these guys talk about entitlement, right? Kids these days are so entitled. And I, and I sit there and think to myself, and I was listening to, to a video the other day, and the, the guy was saying how you want to talk about entitled – how about these guys that have been in their job for 25 years and then they're going to tell their boss that they don't need to change because they've been in their job for 25 years. He's like, yeah. that's the, that's the definition of entitlement. You know what? I don't have to learn how to do use technology. I don't have to learn how to, to, to defend against tempo. I don't have to learn how to, to signal. Okay. Well, dude, you're doing all the behaviors that you complain about with your kids. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the I, only I, thing I think that you see the sweeping across the board change is the importance of like facilities and uniforms. Yeah. Like I, when I grew, you know, I grew up in the '90s watching the Cowboys and the Eagles and 49ers, and I, you know, you never heard anybody talk about that. You talked about players, you talked about schools, that was it. But just the facility war now is such a big. That is important now, and that is different than it's ever been. I think. And like you said, it's a race. I mean, you, you never know. You know that. 
every it seems like a team's uh, re up in their their facilities every couple of years. I know I went through a college and they just built a, a new kind of facility, but didn't have carpet, didn't have the wrap around, and they were they were kind of not complaining about it, but they were like, we still got a lot of work to do if we're going to catch up to some of these other schools. No, and, and that's the other piece. Is you see some of the things that these guys are doing facility wise. That that that's where again it's a slippery slope, but. You know, I don't think there's a you know you hear a lot of people talk about how the NCAA makes a bunch of money off the off the amateur athletes, which they do. That's a hundred percent true, and the, and the TV contracts are enormous. But is there a feasible way to pay every single student athlete in each institution be able to do that? I don't know that that's realistic. So when you think about, you know, if a kid plays football at Clemson, he gets compensated pretty well. He has access to the best nutritionist there is in the state. He has access to the best facilities, the best academic people. Uh, you know, his social status is completely different. He gets compensated with gear. So I don't know inside of flat out handing him money. But I do think there's still some responsibility on the student athlete to getting a free college education. You can still, you can do it. It's up to you to do with that what you want. If you want to major in PE and graduate and have no idea what you want to do or whatever, that's, that's up to you. You could get an economics degree or finance degree for free. So... You know, those are, yeah, yeah, I just, I think that's a, a critical piece. Yeah, so you, you can sit there, you can sit there and play the victim all you want. At the end of the day, man, you got a, a lot of great opportunities that a lot of people would love to have. So, I don't know, I think it's, it's like anything else. You can sit there and you can complain about it, or, you know, you can put your head down, go to work, and come out of there in four years with a degree, and you'll be making some bank. So, I think there's a lot of merit yeah. to what you're saying. Coach, Coach, yeah, how much it, do you – I was just going to ask you, oh, you know, you, you've been at the Division One level and now you've been at, at the so-called smaller schools, you know, wh which one do you think you, you like more? And obviously, you know, you're a head coach where you're at right now and you, you got it rolling. I mean, is that something that, you know, hey, it'd be nice to be Division One, or you know what, I'm pretty happy doing what I do here? Both is the answer. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's about what you're looking for, I guess, you know, the, uh, there's a couple pieces that there's pros and cons to each, you know, like uh, I had a chance to visit with coach Munkin and he thinks it's crazy because we only have six full-time coaches at the office. And I think, you know, I think that's awesome because we wear more hats and, you know, you kind of sit there and watch Arby go, go to work and what they do and how they run their program internally is absolutely unbelievable. I mean, there's not a wasted second there, but managing a staff of 24, 26 people, that is harder than, in my opinion, that's harder than six people doing a bunch of different jobs. Um, you know, and for those guys to do that effectively and efficiently, I think that's a whole separate deal. But I do think, you know, down here, you know, we are the academic people too. You know, we're, we're the academic people, we're the position coaches, we're the coordinators, we're the ones who have to do community service and find our kids jobs and run our weight room and, uh, you know, do all the recruiting and all, all the filling eval. And so, you get your, you get to wear a lot of different hats, which I like. But at the same time, I think at that point, the football can suffer a little bit as far as the detail pieces. Um, so Division One, the staffing I think is is way better. Yeah, another piece in Division One that's just hard to is the money. Like the way those guys get compensated is a pretty fascinating uh, and enticing situation. But at the same time. You know, one of the things I really have enjoyed about being, I got hired as a head coach when I was 30. Uh, and I think at the time I was hired, I was the second youngest head coach in the country. And I have since then 
made probably 16 trillion mistakes. <laughs> and when you make them at a small school where you're not getting paid $5 million a year and everybody on the, you know, every mistake you make is very public and very financially backed, I can make those mistakes and learn and survive. Or if there's some of those mistakes, same mistakes I've made, whether it's what to do with a clock management in a game to handling your own staffing or a player issue or whatever, it's not anywhere near as public. And I can tell you right now that the stress level uh, that those guys in Division One go through, them and their families, um, the compensation, I think, is, is tied directly to that as opposed to, you know, it's not like this guy knows how to block power or teach power 300 times better than a high school coach does. I don't think that did. It's the fact that he's going to, when he goes out to eat, six people are going to might tell him he's an idiot. And he doesn't go out to eat, and six people go on Twitter and tell his wife she's an idiot for marrying that guy. And that's all a that's all a big piece. But the uh, you know certainly I think if you want to that there's absolutely an appeal to uh, to coach at that level because it's it's the best of the best. It's the best coaches. It's the best players. It's the it's the most amount of physical and financial resources. Um, the biggest stadiums is the biggest venue, and I think that that alone, if you if you want to truly compete, you know, when Clemson plays Alabama, that is the best of everything versus the best of everything, and you got to go see who can do what. And that's a pretty that's a pretty cool situation. The one huge advantage, though, that I really do like about coaching at the level I'm at is there is sincerely a balance between the athletics and the academics. So what we really try to do, you know, my own program, and I I really like this, I recruit you here because I think that our situation is it's a very good school with a lot of degrees. So academically, we're going to take care of you. Socially, we're going to have great people here. There's fun stuff to do in the community. And athletically, we're going to have every resource you need to be successful. Try to win every single game we put in. and, And those come together to make give you a holistic life. So that way, if one of those pieces goes bad, there's still two other things keeping your life afloat. And I think in Division One, there is so much of the, uh, uh, you know, boy, I really want to go to the NFL or I'm here to, or that kid's famous tweet, I'm here to play football, not play school. And I think that that's so much more rampant. Uh, you know, not not at places I don't think, like a Notre, Notre Dame or Stanford or, uh, you know, some of those academic places. But I think that there's truly a better blend at, at the lower level than there is you know my kids come here knowing my degree is what's going to carry me the rest of my life I'm not going to get drafted in the NFL statistical probability wise so I don't know it's both is the answer well you know what you're what you're willing to do and I'm getting married here in a month and we don't have any kids or anything like that and don't have plan on any in the near future but so you know if you, somebody wants to pay me five million dollars a year I'd be up for that I'm, I'm assuming at some point <laughs> <laughs> All right, all the all the ads out there, you guys know it. Now you got it, right? right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you the other thing, and I bet you've probably gotten more used to it than I would. Coaches, you guys are on your cell phones all the time. It seems like college coaches are getting a phone call or making a phone call every thirty seconds. You know, you got guys come in recruit, and it's just like their cell phone just buzzing or or chirping every thirty seconds. I that'd get really old really fast for me. Yeah, the crazy part is is everyone still calls them cell phones 
and the app I use on my phone the least is the phone app. You know, you're on everything else. You know, it's a computer that just happens to also be able to make phone calls and video time and, uh, you know, say FaceTime, video messaging, whatever. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, it's, it's all the pieces of it. You know, that, that's, that was the biggest, and kids are way more comfortable now communicating through social media or text than they are even having a phone conversation. And, uh, and I think it is getting a little harder to, to recruit in that sense, because the smart ones know how to like play the game. You know what I mean? As far as what they, the image that they present to them of themselves, uh, can make it look very appealing, very easily. Uh, and I think you can overvalue that without having to actually get much face time. That's uh, the one piece I wish that had changed in recruiting is even even at the major division one levels, you just have so little face-to-face time with recruits where you really, truly get to spend a bunch of time around them. So uh, we, we, we're pretty strategic in our, when a kid visits our campus, we, as coaches, we spend very little time around them because they know how to behave around us. We want, 60 to 80 percent of their visit to be away from us and with all the players so the players can find out you know because they're going to act how they are around their peers how they really are and that's the information that we want to find out and know and um and the social media like i said is just that that's been the one really neat thing about it in small schools when we got here our we've changed everything we've changed our logos we've changed our school colors uh, built a stadium, and, and that's been a really fun piece of branding our program through Twitter and through Instagram. And, and we have been very, very strategic and meticulous in doing that. And as a result, I think our program has gotten much more national uh, exposure in recruiting than most other small NAI programs. And there's some stuff that we've done to take advantage of that. But you know, we got over 80 players from Texas and California alone, and that's pretty unique for a small school in the middle of Kansas. Well, what are some things that's, that's always interesting to me, coach, when, when you're at a smaller college, right, you're not going to get necessarily the pick of the litter. So I think some of those guys do the best job of recruiting because they, you know, maybe like you said, they're actually free to recruit the kids that they want. They don't have to recruit the big four stars. You know, if there's a four star kid in Oklahoma, Oklahoma has got to offer the kid, whether they think he's very good or not, just because of perception. Sure. So, you know, maybe you guys aren't held to that necessarily because you get to kind of find some of these kids that are, are going to develop and you can kind of actually project kids that are going to be uh, players in the future. So what are some things that you're looking at? Just I know every position is different, but maybe just in general at some of these kids uh, to come to your school. Well, the, there's two pieces specifically tied to recruiting that we do that I think has been really strategic about us uh, and even more so because in the NAI you're allowed X amount of scholarships, uh, but it's all private institutions. So it's really up to each school how you want to operate. Um, and, and this isn't a slight towards my institution, many means, but we get the, the scholarship reports from uh, from the president's council or, you know, in our conference. And every year I've been here, we've been dead last in the amount of scholarship money given out. So we are fighting another uphill battle in that regard and there's two things that we've done is is one is we want to give our program how can we get our program and our brand uh exposed to more people than it should Uh, when i first got hired at st ambrose that was the first time i went in i I will never forget this i went into a, a high school in chicago 
and I had to sit in line. This was my first time not like really doing any recruiting for Division One school. And I had to sit in a line of about six or seven coaches from small colleges, and I, you know, meet with a group of six or seven players at a, at a big high school in Chicago. And I was like the seventh one to go. And I walked in that room, and I could just see it in the kids' faces. Uh, and, and it hit me. It hit me like a ton of bricks. It was, hey, these guys, they're all, it's all the same. Whether you're a 1AA school, Division two, II, Division three, junior college, NAI, it doesn't matter where you're from. They're, these are the kids that you're truly, really, realistically going to have access to recruit. They've never heard of your school. They've never heard of your, what your mascot is. They don't know what your school colors are. They don't know somebody who's gone to your school. They don't know about your offense or defense. They've never heard of you as a coach. And it's like that for every school that comes in and talks to them. But we became very strategic in the sense that how, how in 10 minutes can I get to the top of this list and the kids remember us? And uh, if you think so, there's a couple of pieces that we've done is that uh, when we recruit, I don't let our coaches dress up. I make us wear our like around the office like coaching gear and uh, we look like the kids look. We're not another guy walking into a, into a building with khakis and a school polo and parted hair, handing them an admissions folder. We have been extremely, <laughs> extremely meticulous about that. The other thing it. that we do and in, in a playful way, you know, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we will intentionally not use, I'm trying to think of a politically correct way to say this. We will intentionally not use professional language in, in the sense that it's not like a really bad, but I mean, we want the kids <laughs> to look at us and relate to us much more so than, you know, some guy who looks like a stranger who's a 45 year old guy. That's not our strength. So, uh, you know, the other piece we do all of our uh, in school visits, we, do, we use a, uh, an iPad for our presentation. So the kid sees our campus and the kid sees our uh, uniforms and our style of play and what our facilities look like. So when they leave there, they feel like they have a much better connection to us than the other pile of schools that, you know, it might be, I might be recruiting against Division Two from Oklahoma or uh, a really good 1AA program out, out on the East Coast or, or a Texas Division Three. And the reality is the kids don't know anything know any of the difference between all that and it's like you talked about when you get into coaching for so long you just assume uh well you know you've been doing it so long a kid knows the difference between division two and the nai maybe they don't have any they have no idea what the difference is or division one versus one double a and uh educating those guys so i think that's that's been one of the, the biggest pieces our ability to connect those guys and have a really unique strategic attack to pitch those kids um, almost immediately. So that was, uh, does that make sense what I'm saying, I guess? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I, for me, I mean, I just say, you know, we speak about it in terms of kids too. I mean, if you're going to build a relationship with them. They, they got to talk in terms of we, you know, it's not, it's not us versus them. It's not the coaches versus us. It's all we. And if you can get those kids instantly starting to say that, oh, hey, we, we're doing this, we're doing this, I think you're already ahead of the game. And Coach, I, I wanted to bring up another thing you do because I follow all you guys on, on Twitter just because I think you guys are hilarious on Twitter, to be honest. Um, your your guys' gift game is, is super strong. I would say 
like like top of the portfolio strong. So very very impressive work on the on the Twitter game too as well. So if the, here's the, here's the the other piece to the whole thing, and this is when I first when I was at St. Ambrose and I was starting to interview for head coaching jobs, I had no idea what Twitter was, and I tried to set one up. And this was back when Twitter you couldn't make an account from your phone. You had to do it on your computer, and then you could run the account. So I got so mad, and this sounds terrible to say, but I tried like eight different times to make a Twitter account. I couldn't do it. And I would just sit in my office and get mad at myself because I'm like, Paris Hilton figured this out, and you can't. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it sounds terrible. But I, so I forged through, and I got it. And once I figured out how it was going to work or whatever, that to me is the single greatest attribute. Uh, resource for that our program has so what we have done strategically and there's a couple pieces that i think people are crazy if they don't do this and so number one we don't have a kansas wesleyan football account for two reasons one is it totally funnels all of your communication through one single account and twitter's strength i still don't understand instagram very much because you can't you just like stuff but twitter is all about exponential growth and that yes. to me is the biggest thing so one is if you have only one account, it, it's it's one is it fun, it cuts all your contacts and, and interactions and communication down by you know a, a power of six. And two is you don't have a strong enough brand. No one's going to wake up in North Carolina tomorrow and care about Kansas Wesleyan football. That's the reality of it, and especially when we first got here. So. To me, is that you don't have like now if you're Nebraska, Nebraska can do it different. There's a whole bunch of people everywhere that knows what that end looks like, and Coach Frost, like they have a totally different brand. But when you don't, um, to me, that's where all of our so I made all of our coaches start get Twitter accounts, and we all have unified uh, handles, and we're very meticulous about that. And my rule is, you have to tweet three times a day. You have to tweet something that's about that's work related or professional related. It could be something about the school, academics, football, a player, whatever, tied to the program. Number two is that you have to tweet something that is completely unrelated to your professionalism. So people get to know you better. And the third thing you have to do is to engage one of your followers, whether that's a reply or retweet or whatever, so that we're constantly engaging people and getting our our brand and our message spread through it. So when we have like recruit sign or whatever, uh, or, you know, we get into a debate of LeBron James versus Michael Jordan or, you know, pro wrestling gifts or whatever it is. <laughs> now there's six people that are growing that like crazy, as opposed to one account that nobody, you know, it's a nameless, faceless account. Uh, that's It's really hard to make a personal connection to. So um, we try to, you know, tweet like the three P's all the time, stuff that's pictures personalities or passion and we really spend a lot of time and, uh, and we're really really meticulous about this and the other thing too is uh, that just drives me nuts is we're not an ad when you follow our accounts not just kansas wesleyan football all day every day and it's not just you know if you do that you become like a pop-up ad and that's no one wants that no one gets on twitter going boy i hope i only hear about pepsi commercials today you know, you don't, that's not why you follow somebody who's, you know, signed with Pepsi. So we're, we try to be very meticulous that we don't overkill you with Kyle football info and, and info, you know, it'll get sprinkled in here or there, but we really want to do a good job of seeing that we're real people and we're relatable people and we're not 
if you're looking for a coach who's 65 years old, who's going to scream and yell and, uh, you know, have six hour long practices and all that, don't come play for us. That's not who we are and how we do stuff. And I think that's a meticulous, that, that's a very, very strategic initiative that we have done and done very, very well. Coach, I got to ask you, is, is that something you guys, you know, have, have researched? Have you had marketing people come in? And then uh, go, going back to the other thing you'd said before, so I wanted to ask that question. And then the other question I have is, okay, when the kids do come to your campus, do you have like a questionnaire? Do you have an interview that you perform with your players so you can kind of get some, some unadulterated information about that kid? Or is that just something you guys kind of do informally? So kind of a two-part question. Okay, the first part was about like the Twitter, I guess, analytics. Not yeah. really. Um, the only thing we knew initially, once I, you know, like I said, when I first got hired here and started to read about it, it was the, the, the paradigm of the social media marketplace was shifting. And it happened, the last time it happened like this that I can tell was AOL to Facebook. You know, when I was going through high school, AOL was the coolest thing in the whole world and everybody had it and everybody knew each other's screen names. And I remember being in college watching Facebook happen where you could like talk to kids on your own campus and then you could in your own dorm and then you could talk to kids at other dorms on your campus and then you could talk to other kids that, that are going to college in your state and then it blew up from there. But then it became like, okay, well, all the old people use AOL, the new cool people use Facebook. Well, once Twitter came along, it had a couple of key people like Ashton Kutcher and Paris Hilton and those guys who really got on board and really uh, gave it exposure and showed how it was able to be used. And then now Facebook has become, you know, when you say Facebook, that's something everybody's mom and grandma are on now. It's not uh, what what kids are doing. Um, so that's, I, I think we just got ahead of the curve as far as how that's going to be used and we're willing to take risk in the sense that we don't always try to we try to present a real it's not a risk we, we just we're very genuine on there and i think there's so many people that try to be salesmen and kids are smart they see right through that and know that you're just putting up a you know something to make it look a little better than what it is or or, or you're not being genuine and they don't know they never learn who you are as a person and how you're going to react and behave. So that's number one is I guess we know. We just, I think we have a very good feel for it because we're a younger group, I guess. Or my yeah. staff is. I feel like a dinosaur around those guys. But um, <laughs> And the second part is we do a lot of informal. Uh, it's much more informal, I guess. What we do before, you know, we'll do our best to get to know, uh, know recruits, I guess, informally. Um, Brian Beal is our recruiting coordinator, and he's the best recruiter I have ever been around in my life. Um, you watch when he leaves, you know, he's a GA, but he's 29. And when he leaves us, he's going to get hired somewhere big. I mean, he, is, he, he can sign. I, I've never seen anything like this guy. But when he leaves, we will take a step back in the recruiting department because he's so, he's so good at it. And uh, with parents and kids and the whole bit. But he – we do a pretty good job vetting people as much as we can, but once we get the film, uh, you know, we've got, we kind of have a process where we get the film and we evalue, and if we really think you're good, then we're going to start recruiting you, and we're going to get to know you. And if we really like you and we really are impressed, before we will offer our bigger offers to guys, we will speak. I, for, I make our assistants call the coach because I want to find out what what – 
you know, how are they, you know, how are they as competitors? How are they when things don't go great? Have they ever, you know, are there any issues we need to know about or whatever? And, and the coaches are, they want to help their kids, but they're not going to lie to you either. You know, they understand their name and their reputation. And that's been very, very helpful. And there's been a couple of times where he's like, coach, he's a great player, but that's where it stops. There's, you probably don't want a piece of this. And, um, you know, the other area that we have made, I think we've done such a great job here, uh, and it kind of happened based on supply and demand, is we have really good short players. You know, if there's a kid who's six foot four as an offensive lineman or taller, I don't recruit them. Because if they're six foot four with their shoes off and they're any good, everyone in America at bigger levels with more scholarship money tried to get them already and they found something they didn't like. So when I see at our level, and I think even in a lot of Division twos, if you see guys that are six foot six at off- offensive line, they're probably not very good. So we have done such a good job of finding guys that are six foot, about the best you get, about six foot three, six foot two. And I might have some six foot one linemen, but they are good football players. Now they, the trade off is you know, a little bit. If they come in at 285, they're probably only going to leave at 290 and 295. And, and they're, they're not going to, their ceiling isn't as high, but you don't have anywhere near as many swing and misses either. Um, which I think you do run into that in Division One quite a bit, which just with the, uh, you know, it's hard. It's hard because you're signing these kids when they're 16, and then you're trying to figure out how good they're going to be when they're 22 and 23. That's a hard process. Just, that's a big window that's open. So we've done such a good job of recruiting guys that are just not quite tall enough that when, uh, you know, if a Division One walks in there to recruit the guy and doesn't pass the height test, that's where we'll try to jump on you. So we've had a lot of success with shorter guys, and, and, and you know, really that's been, or, you know, or at the skill position, bigger guys that are maybe just a step slow than what you're looking for. They're not 10-8 track guys. I, I love that you make that point because I've I've a lot of times thought that some of the, even the smaller Division One, even some of the smaller Division One schools should be going after that same model. You know, I go to listen to some of those offensive line coaches and they come through our high school or whatever and they say yeah sorry we're looking for the kid that's 6'6 and 315 pounds and can dunk a basketball and I want to say yeah so is every other big college that comes in here yeah but why don't you guys you know take a few chances on some of these smaller guys that can play football and and you know let you do some big things that was one thing at when I was at Houston that I think they did a pretty good job of especially you know certain coaches did better than others but that took chances on guys that other Division One schools weren't willing to, and, and they did have a much better ceiling, or they they had already had proven that they could play in high school, but they didn't meet the six four that the col- other big colleges wouldn't even look at. Yeah, exactly, and, and it's not like you know six foot two and six foot three aren't little people, right? You know, if they're you know some of those guys are six foot three and they're six feet wide, some of those guys, and those are incredible football players. And for some reason, you know, I'll I'll never forget. I went to Wisconsin's football camp once when I was uh, in the summer when I was coaching in St. Ambrose. And they are, they are like the football or the offensive line mecca of the world. And the best mm-hmm. high school football player I've ever seen was some offensive lineman from the Crystal Lake South in the Chicago area. He was up at the camp. And he just took every kid he went against and just snapped them in half like, like uh, you know, stalks of corn. I mean, he did this to – and they were all major offer guys, BCS guys. He, I mean, he was just erasing these kids. And he was 
285. I mean, he's a big person. And I went and, you know, I, said, I was like, Jesus, he's a kid. He's the best high school football player I've ever seen. And they're like, yeah, he's good. It's just too bad he's so little. And I was like, <laughs> so little? Like, you can't even recruit him? And then they're all line rolls out, and they're like 6'5", 330 across the board. And he would have been a run with that crew of guys. and all So they, they've got their own brand. But certainly you'd think a kid like that, if he wasn't going to Wisconsin, he could play at, you know, another major school, you know, because Wisconsin's obviously the elite of the elite. But, boy, that guy could have played anywhere else, I would have imagined. Yeah, I really, I really don't get that, that one at all. I think you, you see it so many times now. I mean, the, the Boise States of the world that kind of came up, uh, the TCUs of the world, those were always the schools that I was looking at to see who who they were recruiting when I was at the college level because it seemed to me like th- those were the guys that could pinpoint the kids that were maybe a little bit hungrier, uh, you know, maybe having that one click away, and all of a sudden it seemed like those guys were just end up beating the crap out of, you know, some of the, the OU kids and the OSU kids that we would see. And it's fun fun for me to watch because I thought those kids were the ones that should be going anyway. You know, it's funny you say that because, I, like I said, I was just out at West Point for a week with, the, with their staff and watching those guys go through spring ball. And it was really, really eye-opening and refreshing for me to see how they run their program. And when I say that, I mean how they recruit, how they run their meetings, how they run drill work, how they run practice, because they don't have players that are being recruited by Boston College and Syracuse and, and NC State and Clemson. They don't have those kids. But I'll tell you what else they don't have. They don't have a single stupid person on their entire campus. They don't have a single soft kid on their campus. And they don't have a single selfish kid on their campus. Every one of those kids and every one of those coaches are the toughest, most driven, competitive group of people. And they all get it. I mean, they ask for scout team work. And they got 30 guys that run out there. Sometimes it's punters. And they don't stand there. Those guys take their reps and they're flying around and getting, you know, knocking each other's heads off. And they coach out there. Their OC and their DC are incredible, incredible at what they do. And I just, that, that was, you know, they go into every game with nowhere near the, the recruiting rankings or recruiting class or whatever. And there's only five teams in all of college football, however many there are, 130. There were five teams only that won more games than those guys won last year. And they don't have to, you know, they got a team full of guys that pretty much all the major schools said, we like you, but you're not good enough to play here. And they just, they understand who they are and how they do things and how they operate. And they recruit the right fit for them. And that's, that's where I guess that would be my biggest. And I don't, I don't think it, it's a tough, it's a tough juggling act, and I'm saying this as an outsider, and I realize if somebody listens to this, I'll probably sound very uneducated or naive when I say this. But to me, that is the, the balancing act that Division One has to do in recruiting is it makes me sick when I see some of these kids hold schools hostage and they have on a Florida shirt and they take it off and it's a Florida State shirt and they take it off and it's a USC shirt and that's like a where he's going <laughs> and but at the same time that's that behavior is being tolerated you know what i mean like finding like okay you go have that guy i'm gonna get a kid that doesn't want to do that and as i say that but you know, push comes to shove if, if i'm coaching at florida and i don't get that kid and he goes to florida state and now i gotta play against them you know 
maybe I'd be taking the shirts off for him. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> you so can go ahead and go to, to Florida. <laughs> Exactly. It's easy to sit in my seat and go, all right, see that on ESPN now. I just wouldn't do that. But boy, you don't know, you don't understand that pressure. You know, that was that was the one thing I really didn't like about coaching at one double A football is that uh, you know, if you're you know, we coached in the valley, so it was western Illinois unbelievable teams, North Dakota State, South Dakota State, uh, Illinois State, Youngstown State. Just I mean the whole league is just an absolute gauntlet of great players that are really well coached so I never really liked the idea that you know the starting running back at, at a major division one school gets kicked off the team because he was stealing money from his teammates well now he's going to go to one double a and if you don't recruit him you're going to have to play against him and you know that you don't really want a guy like that in your program and and that that's the the battle, I guess, that you run into um, that I, that I didn't really like when I was a young coach when I was there, and that's that's where I've grown so much. I know you didn't you didn't ask this, so I apologize. I'm long winded, but like, I love where it. I I'm in, I'm embarrassed now of how I was as a coach when I was 21, 22 years old because back then it was you could either help me win games or you couldn't, and if you could help me win a game, well, you know, I paid attention to you, and if you couldn't. I was trying to get rid of you to find somebody who could. And as I've gotten older, none of that means anything to me. I, I don't think. I, I, I believe that if you you win with winners and you lose with losers, there's lots of schemes you can run. There's lots of kinds of players you can recruit. You can have quarterbacks that run or pocket quarterbacks or, you know, big possession receivers, real fast. All that, all that changes. The constant is, are they great people that you're gonna that you're gonna love and they're gonna love you back that'll die for you and you die for them and those are the guys that you can you know every day of their life they're either a winner or they're a loser I don't care how fast they run a forty or how much they bench or like I think that means very very little and uh, I think I think you can use some of those measurables as what not to get you know what I mean you can't have a running back that runs five two in the forty but just because somebody runs four four versus four six. I don't think that determines a whole lot of success whatsoever. I think it's all those other intangibles. And the, and the single greatest, I guess, base up my sleeve we have in recruiting, I can sit down until I hired Josh Lewis away, you know, this new GA. Every single coach on my staff is a former player of mine. And that goes a long way in recruiting because I bet you I'm the only one who's recruiting you that can say that. That everybody who's known me and, and gone through their experience with me as a player wants to can you know the way you're treated the way you're prepared uh, the way you're cared for the relationship that you have that they go through that as a player and then want to continue that i take way more pride in that than i do anything else any amount of games you win because if, if we lose games okay that's whatever fine but you can if you, as long as everybody's in it together and doing the right things you know that to me is the is the true measure of of value i guess Amen. But again, that's right. <laughs> I'm finishing. I'm finishing last place in a Power Five conference every year. No one, no one cares. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's just it's that tough balancing act, and and you know certainly there's some things I would do different than how I am here. But I think we just that to me is the biggest thing is that we've been able to adapt very well to our situations here. You know, when I got hired, we had 38 kids on the team, and we knew it was going to be rough. So we recruited a whole class of freshmen and no transfers and 
we played them all and, and tried to define success every way possible in our program other than wins and losses. And all those same kids now just, you know, in three weeks, they're all going to graduate college. That was our first recruiting class. And those are going to be some of my closest friends the rest of my life, probably, because we've been through every, you know, been through so much together, so much sick, good and bad successes and failures, but you do it together. And to me, so that that's where I've just, I've evolved completely and I'm much happier coaching. That's the one thing I like about being a head coach is uh, I get to do stuff my way and, and I'll take into consideration what other, you know, what's valuable and what's important and, and take in uh, insight from people I hold very, very close to me, whether that's my assistant coaches or guys in the, in the profession that I think are very smart that I can call for advice, but I don't have to keep my coaches at the office, you know, till 10 o'clock at night to feel like I did a good job at work that day. And I think that, you know, to, to me, I can't go at this level. And I, and I, if I am ever a division one head coach, I don't know how I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to win or lose or whatever, but the one thing I will, I will, that I can guarantee you people will say about me, nobody will have a better working environment than working for me. That is the one thing I will, I can't promise you you'll make the most money or whatever, but every coach wants to be compensated and you can get compensated in more ways than money and the quality of life that you have, the quality of your family life, the working environment, the level of stress that's brought in uh, intrinsically by your own program and your own pressures, I will have a better working environment than everywhere else. That That is like my number one thing that I strive to do. And I can compensate you with time, all, all those pieces. So I think that's a, the trend needs to go back that way because it doesn't have to be, if everyone's doing it the same way, that can't be a competitive advantage. You know what I mean? Right. The same recruit. Agreed. That, that, it's, it's, it's like picking up a girl with a, you know, if you go out, if every guy is dressed the same and they're all saying the exact same thing to the same girl a thousand times, she gets 500 text messages that all kind of say the same thing. How does she ever separate somebody from the pack? So it's, a, it's about having that willingness to be, you know, I'm going to do it my way, the way that I think is right. And if I end up getting fired for it, hey. At least I did it the way I know is right and something I believe in and my staff can believe in. And But what if it works and you can change the way the, the landscape, uh, and, you know, evolve the landscape, I guess. So we'll see. <laughs> well, well, Coach, <laughs> I, love, I love the yeah. answer, man. <laughs> and you're obviously a good recruiter. You know, you can, you can feel the passion uh, even, through, even through the phone for, for that stuff. So the other thing I kind of wanted to ask was it seems like when you come in, you're a new coach, you almost have to recruit the players that are already there. I mean, not necessarily to oh, yeah. play for you, but to, to buy in and trust you and, and think that you are, again, you're someone different from the pack that maybe they've gone through three or four other coaches and you're not just like all these other coaches. So did you have like a strategic certain plan when you were going in, taking this new head coaching job of, of how you were going to recruit your own players that are already there? Or is it just something that you just kind of let your your own self go there and, and let the kids feel that passion and just kind of um, get to know you? No, yeah, a little bit of both. It's uh, it's you know we met I met with every kid initially right away and kind of explained my plan one on one and that was pretty easy to do because there was only a handful of people here, so that part was easy. But they really 
don't really care what you're going to say because every coach can come in and say that. Yes. Um, to me, it's a, it's about, you know, once you can get rolling and have some shared experiences as far as like, you have to show them that things are going to be different. You can't tell them. And to me, you know, we've done a bunch of cool things as far as like, uh, like every spring, we're actually going to do this uh, next week. But like, I rent out the local movie theater and we, I think I, we go show them Tombstone because I think that's the most badass movie of all time. And yeah, every, right. you can't be like, you're not a full man until you see Tombstone. So I make right. that movie came out in 93 and our kids are all weren't even born for another, you know, geez, eight, nine, 10 years now. So um, we do just a bunch of stuff like that. And, and, and like I said, being able to define success differently, um, you know, the hard part, I do think there's coaches that have a humongous advantage. You know, when, when Scott Frost gets hired in Nebraska, kid does one Google search and looks on his Wikipedia page and is like, whoa, this guy is extremely successful at anything he touches. I better just listen to everything he says. This guy is smart. He's successful on the field. Everybody loves him. He's just, that's, his, he's got a resume that can be found out in 30 seconds. I think it's tougher at a place like, uh, you know, you look at some of those Mac schools with a changeover, you know, maybe three coaches in five years. That happens at some of those, those mid-level Division ones. Um, where the new coach coming in, you don't know anything about that guy. I and mean, he's going to say, if he says the same stuff the last two guys said, some of those guys suffer, you know, fatigue from that. So to me, it's about finding unique ways to, to show uh, what you're going to do. And, and at the same time, you have, you have to at the same time know the other guys before you probably did some good stuff. And they did some good stuff that was different from you. For what There's a million variables as to why it might have not worked out. So showing those, you know, the, the staff before you, you know, some respectful to how they did things in their process and not having to reinvent the wheel, but just getting the ground rolling and, and, and really, uh, you know, you know, I hate using the term building culture, but <laughs> we try to reverse engineer it where I want the end product to be the kid had a great experience. I don't know that that means he started. I don't know that that means he played some. I don't know if that means he was first team all American or never played a snap at all but I want him to have a great experience in my program overall. Well, that's defined if you have a great experience because of the culture you are a part of and the only thing that determines culture is the behaviors. So the behaviors feed the culture, the culture feeds the experience. So it's about getting your guys to behave um, the way they need to. You know, we brought in a really talented, this happened today actually, we brought in a really, really talented offensive lineman who is a humongous position of need for us. He is clearly was going to be a starter and is really just not putting forth the effort in the classroom. And then today decided he didn't want to lift because he was too tired. And now he's not on my football team anymore because mm -hmm. I'm not going to win with a guy like that. I'm not going to no. tolerate doing that. You know, you, you know, this is determines and it's getting, I'm getting a little, uh, different because when I got hired, I hired all single guys. You know, when we all got down here, everybody was single with no kids. And now, uh, you know, there's two coaches on my, and two full-time guys have little little baby boys. And, and now it's like, geez, we don't do a good job. Those dudes get fired. And, like, their dads get fired. Like, they're fired. That sucks. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> doing a good job. Like, they, they don't have any money, and they got to tell their kid, like, if the kid's 11, and they get fired. I remember when I – got into coaching. I told my, my mom, I'm the youngest of four and I was the mistake. 
I'm 11 years behind the next closest sibling. They're all way older than me. And I remember telling my mom, and nobody knows anything about sports, but I was telling my mom, I'm like, if my career goes well, I'm going to get fired like three or four times probably. And she was like, who would fire you? You're a nice boy. And I'm like, that's not <laughs> how it works, <laughs> mom. <laughs> so that's it's awesome. weird. <laughs> it's a weird paradigm, I guess. But yeah, it's, um, you just that, that whole it's the experience. You know, I care what you do, not what you say. I tell my players that all the time. And if you treat them right, they're going to treat you right for the most part. Coach, you've talked a lot about you know the game evolving and you evolving as a coach. Can you at least tell me why power is still the best play in football? Yeah, there's a. I'll tell you what. Those uh, base 3-4 defenses that play with the two four eyes are doing everything they can to, to try to make power a, a, a tough way to go. But I'll, the power is the one play that no matter what, it works. Uh, it, it's it's a, like you talk, like just talked about culture. It is a cultural play. Um, you can run it. As a one-back power play, a two-back power play, it's really simple for, uh, you know, the zone game and the option game. Those take a lot of reps to get really, really efficient at it. And when you're talking about, you can tell a ball carrier, hey, we're going to wham this, you know, we're going to, you know, wham or kick out whatever you call the C-gap or D-gap defender, how are you going to block it? And you have the puller, the ball carrier, you chase the outside leg of the puller and you make that guy right. There is quantifiable data for every ball, ball carrier, and it's a really simple thing Mm -hmm. and it's an answer all to to any kind of front it's an answer all to any games anything that you can carry out of multiple personnel groupings multiple formations that cover against any front that cover every game scenario whether you're up down minus 20 third and one first and ten goal line going in uh sprinkle some 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 zone or some motion onto it to hide it maybe throw in a power read or whatever which has been huge packaging two plays with it or power in an RPO. And it's never going to go away. There's a reason it's been around the dawn of time in football and why it just continues to go. And, and the other piece is you don't have to have a specific back to be good at it. That to me is, you know, every quarterback can hand it off and every back can run it. And there's some, you can have big backs, you can have little scat backs, and it is just the sexiest, best, thing football can bring to the table man it is it is incredible and it's it's awesome because you can get in the two-man surface three-man surface four five-man unbound bring a tight tackle over there's so many different ways to get to it and do it right and then you can get into the tag game where you're gonna you know base the end with the tight end and put the fullback on the sam or flip them and like i said add the power replay in which has been a huge uh a huge advent over the last you know, whatever, four, five seasons, that play has just come up. Everybody can do it and run it. and uh, But just it's an attitude play that is just it, – it's never a bad call, you know. There, you know, one thing that we do that's really weird, in 2015, my second year here, we went 10-1. and one, And uh, we were the only team in all of college football at all levels we are the only team that did not attempt a field goal the entire season. And wow. when we crossed about the other 45 yard line and it got to third and seven and other dudes are rolling in dime and nickel and 
I'm getting in 22 personnel and I'm running power because I'm going to get me down to fourth and one and then I'm going to do it again really fast tempo <laughs> while you still got all those little guys on the field. And I got that idea from, you know, Mike Uremovich, who is the, uh, I really have kind of modeled, modeled my coaching track after him. Mike Uremovich took over uh, St. Francis of Illinois as a head coach when he was really young. I think he was like 25 or six when he got hired and they were really bad. And then he took him and made him an absolute powerhouse. And he just runs power and inside zone. And uh, he really talked to me into doing that is that, you know, kicking field goals is hard. It's hard in the NFL, let alone once you get down and down and down. And um, so he, he now he's at Northern Illinois and he's killing it and having a ton of success. He'll be a major head coach here pretty soon. And uh, I'm the same way. We run inside zone and we run power and, I really only carry inside zone if you're going to get in, in a bear front. But, you know, power was the greatest thing in the world. And then people started getting the bears, bear fronts back in the late 80s and early 90s, which really forced the invention of true spread and spread, you know, multiple spread systems. And now, you know, we're the weird thing. Eight out of the 10 teams in our league are going to be 10 personnel, one back, gun. And when we line up and we're in two back, because we look very similar to like Auburn and Oklahoma right now, kind of a hybrid of the two, uh, we're going to line up and run power. You probably haven't seen that a whole bunch. And the other piece that I love, nobody recruits fullbacks anymore. Nope. So I am now, I have access. I had a kid who started here for three years and was all conference. He had no business being at our level. I mean, he was a division, low level, division one, one double A, incredible fullback. And he just crushed people's skulls every day here for three straight years and was awesome. So I, it gets me access to better personnel than I used to, than I probably should. And it's a totally different thing to have to defend. I mean, yeah, we run power to the point where and since I've been doing it, you can watch people do it. Wisconsin breaks people's will during the course of games. Yep. I mean, great, big, strong men just get their brains bashed in, you know, running power into their teeth. And you don't want a part of that. I mean, I don't. I'm 35. I get out of bed and can sprain my ankle and pull my hamstring. You know, I wake up sore and you're like, God, I'm not old. Can you imagine <laughs> being a kid and just power and been run at you by big kids? That'd be brutal. It scares me thinking about it. Well, that's what kind of excited me. You know, you talked about you guys have played NDSU. Um, and so, you know, we're kind of NDSU nerds a little bit. So that's kind of yeah. exciting to hear that you played them. And I'm sure, you know, kind of going the weekend of that game was was pretty similar as far as, hey, you better get you ready for Tyler Roll? power. That Tyler Roll kid they had at tailback, number 43. Right? I do remember him, yep. Oh, my God, that guy. <laughs> we, You know, we're exchanging film and we're getting there and he's breaking the school rushing record against Minnesota. And then we got to play him. That was not a <laughs> overly confident game prep <laughs> that week. We're just, you know, this is tough. And the other our part is they do as much. You know, I watched them uh, beat Iowa a couple of years ago, and they were doing some really good bounce variations where, you know, they're fitting the puller different and bouncing the ball out so that your run fits get screwed up. And they, they just – they're so good at it and totally matches – you go back to their identity and, and kind of what it does. And I, I – Funny you guys mentioned that. I read the, I read this great article about Scott Frost in Nebraska. I think, I think very highly of him and how they do things. And he's smart. He adapts. And he, you know, he talks about, you know, he's a guy who learned from Tom Osborne and then learned from Chip Kelly. And he probably learned the exact opposite of everything and now is going to be able to build a hybrid of the two. 
to where you take some spread elements, some guys that can run, but with the toughness and the developmental pieces that he talked about that Nebraska was, he talked about Nebraska, they, they struggled because they stopped, they lost sight of their identity and, and who they are and what they do and what they believe in and what they're going to be able to have access to. And, and to me, that's different. You know, you're, you're, it's a different, uh, you're, you're probably not schematically going to run the same things at Minnesota that you are at USC, you know, um, mm-hmm. and sticking to your identity. And I just, you know, we're shit. I'm sorry. I don't know if it's all the cuz or not, but we're a <laughs> Midwestern team and it gets windy out here and we want to be tough and physical. And that's our deal. You know, we, we talk about that, that if we can go into every game with and do three things only, if we're the smartest team, the most physical team, and we handle, we're the most uh, resilient team, we handle adversity better than everybody else, we're going to be a tough out. You can do that. Every great team does those three things. They're nasty. They're smart. They don't do stupid plays, uh, stupid things, and make stupid situational plays. And they don't panic when things go bad. Like, you know, that's, I think we do a great job of that. It's like, you know, kids are going to miss blocks. Kids are going to miss tackles. Kids are going to drop passes. Kids are going to throw bad balls. Kids are going to jump offside. All that's going to happen in a game, no matter what. And it's about being able to over- overcome those and understand that those things do happen and being able to evolve. And that's that's where stuff like power, you can always, if things aren't going great, I think how many games in your lives you watch where just things aren't going great, and then you go back to power, and everybody, it just slows everybody's heart rate down, and you get into your rhythm, and you go. Couldn't agree more, man. Like well, a pacifier. That's <laughs> you know? exactly right. Everyone feels good about it, and the kids are excited. You know, we run that a lot um, at the high school I'm at in Oklahoma. And so, like you said, it's nice being the only book on the shelf. I don't think any, there's hardly any other teams that will ever get in 22 personnel. So, no. in, in that, and, or even 21, there's very few that get in 21. And I do it every about every two years because I'm an idiot. You know, I watch a bunch of film, and I think that, you know, I get too excited, and I like all this other stuff. and I, I try to sprinkle in. I see other people doing some things that are successful and try to want to tweak it. But I end up in the same spot every time as I just, ah, you know, I got to put a bunch of reps in this and I don't really love it. and I'm not really great at it. And I'm going to run power. And it's the same thing. Like you can do a championship game or, or a super important game and it's nut cutting time. What do you do? You run the stuff. You, you, you installed the first 10 minutes of the very first day of camp because you believe in it and you know it and your kids believe it's going to work. And it's power. No question. Well, Coach, we, we've had a blast so far. Um, you know, it, it, we're coming out on a little over an hour, so we'll get you off of here. But kind of the last question I ask everybody is, is if you're watching another team's offensive line, what's something they'd be doing that would make you think really highly of their offensive line coach? Tackle pass protection. If they can keep tackles against kids, in today's day and age where, you know, there's, you know, people figure out snap count pretty fast. And if you can get your tackles in the times that you need to throw the ball to be able to stay square and, and stop a guy who's some of these DNs are ungodly freakish athletes, but for the combination of the violence and the, and the size and the speed where you really don't, it's a, that's a tough world out there by yourself as a tackle. If you're a, if you're a half man, half zone team, I think especially I really, at, at some of the lower levels, you know that they get some kids oh, that yeah. shouldn't be playing defensive end. They should probably be playing linebacker. But as many teams they see pass, they put that linebacker type kid at DN. Now your your big offensive lineman's got to pass block against the linebacker, basically. 
Yeah, I think any guys that can do that really well, uh, like you can tell that that's a their kids are consistently coached up. I also look for like consistency with the snaps, you know, where those are hitting. If they're a gun team, I think that's a very, very undervalued piece of what they do. And then, you know, there's so many teams now that really the thing that's crazy about football is it's really had that shift. And I was talking about this to Keith Grabowski is just, it used to be offenses would change personnel all the time and get in a million different formations and a million different looks to do the same couple things. And now, and defense has really stayed in the same personnel. You're a four, three cover two, and you just stayed in that and you lived in that. And that's what you did. Now there has been a complete shift in offenses really of trying to get the same 11 kids on the field a lot and go fast and keep those people on. And defense is an answer for like a defensive tempo. They are creating all kinds of personnel packages. So the other thing I look for is if there's a team that you're playing and you know, they're, they're, they're getting some of those really tough third and medium to third and long looks, you know, third and medium from your own end or third and long from anywhere. And they've got, you know, six linebackers on the field up, standing up, and you've got to be able to have your kids sort that out because none of the kids are playing their traditional spots. And the teams that are well-prepared and well-coached to be able to pick those things up clean are, uh, you know, you look for that. And that to me is a really – like those guys, you can tell they're really well coached and well prepared. And if they can do that, they're going to do their base thing really clean and really well. Awesome, coach. Also, the back backside inside zone. You can cut off and still <laughs> vertical walls in the backside inside zone without getting washed. That's I still like that. That's a tough. That's it's tough, tough and, and hard to do. It's tough, and I don't think enough. I really think that just from doing it, I th- I don't think enough coaches talk about how important it is to get that second step in the ground. You know, they always want to say, oh, you're crossing oh. over with your second step. But I truly think guys are trying to get their second step vertical, but they're getting contacted before it's in the ground, and that causes it to cross over. And I think that's one of the biggest problems on the backside. There, there's, you know, one coaching point that I always use, try to use. I'm like, yeah, I ask our kids, you ever, like, walked into a, a shopping mall or a department store, and it's been raining outside, and you walk in, you hear your shoes squeak, so you can the map, yeah take about 90 steps and half a second to dry your feet off. And that's really about the same kind of footwork you need to have as an offensive lineman is just a million of those steps without being able to see any daylight in the, uh, in your feet, you know, between your feet and the turf. I think that's, that's a big helpful tool. And the one other thing that if anyone's listened to this and you coach offensive line and I need to, if somebody knows anything about patenting or trademarking something or how you get a (laughs) patent on something so I can make money off this. If you have any, this is the best, piece of equipment I've ever purchased or made was, uh, you know, those like, they look like uh, big, huge, really thin rubber bands that you do like therapeutic work on your shoulders. Right. They come in those big yeah. spools and you can cut them with scissors. If you take those and you assume your average lineman's about six foot two to six foot three, if you take one of those and you spool off a three foot length and cut it, and then you tie the ends together in, in a big knot, Go have your old lineman go do all of their drill work with that band around their ankles because it'll, it's, it gets what you want out of with boards without having boards. So they have to keep that band taught uh, to do all their pass sets, to do all their, all their gap blocks, all their zone steps. And uh, we go through everything other than pulls, really, with, with those around their ankles. And that forces them to have really, really good body posture and, and, and base all the time and then if you do it long enough that just becomes second nature for them so it's really good like in pass pro redirect drills 
hmm. or just regular sets is because you can't have your feet slide together. Otherwise the band falls off your ankle. And that's, I'm telling you, that is a, somebody figure out a way that I can make giant rubber bands and sell those. <laughs> and they're way cheaper than shoots. They're way cheaper. They're, they're easier to move than boards. You can just carry them in a beanie bag and drop them on the field and go. But those are invaluable. Well, and the other problem I always had with boards is that you're never on a complete perfect angle. Like you have to be on board. No so much different movements that have to happen when you're blocking a lineman that, you know, I've never really been a big fan of boards for that reason, where if you can use those bands. You can get on the actual different angles that you'll be on in a block. Correct. You can go through every, I mean, you can go through everything exactly the same. You can do steps on air. You can do steps against bags. You can do steps against the defensive kid. I mean, I've had our kids do like pass pro one-on-ones with those around their ankles and they're way better. I mean, they, you know, they feel weird at first because they don't have any confidence in it, but then they understand that it's about body positioning and posture and they end up getting pretty good, pretty fast at it. That's stuff they can be doing in the off season too, you know, kind of on their oh, own. Absolutely. Exactly. And it, like, they're easy to transport. They're almost virtually no cost. So those have been very, very helpful to us. So if you're looking for something new offensive line wise, I would really recommend that. Again, we cut them in three foot strips, and if I got a midget, you know, who's a five foot ten guy or whatever, I'll shrink it down a little bit. Or if I got a giant, somehow we are. We lucked into our left tackle, who's a former college basketball player, six foot eight, and he was uh, really thin when he got. He was two hundred thirteen pounds when he got here, and now he's two eighty five, and he's a four point student, and he's going to get some legitimate NFL looks because he's so big and he's so smart, and he's going to graduate in two more. He's going to graduate now and then get his MBA while he's still playing and uh he'll probably be like 305 pounds by the time he leaves here and he's very very athletic and good yep helps to have those guys <laughs> yeah but he was he looked like uh you know Splendor Man or whatever when he, when he first got he was a <laughs> basketball <laughs> kids never lifted a weight in his life until he got to college it worked out well for you guys though yeah it worked out very well for us he's a great kid so we're, we're really lucky he towers above everybody else in the league. And that's going to do it for this episode of RTP. We want to again thank all of our sponsors. You guys make sure and go check them out. Help grow our community by telling other coaches about Run the Power. And if you enjoy Running the Power, go get your shirt, long sleeve, or hoodie at runthepower.com. Also, if you have any topics or any questions you would like for us to discuss in the next podcast, simply rate our podcast and then leave a comment in the writer review section of the podcast app. This will help our podcast rating as well as it'll allow us to answer the questions you all want answered. Make sure and go check out our blog at runthepower.com. Follow me on Twitter at Harper underscore coach and Coach Walls at Coach Brady Walls. Run the Power now also has its own Twitter and Instagram, and you can find that at Run the Power. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. Talk to you soon.